Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I just want to take a moment and let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community. This week's episode, Clyde Glass is starting our new series, Healed by Jesus. And coming up on March 10th and 11th, we're having our annual Lenten seminar. So this year, our speaker is Dr. Charles Nienkirchen, and the seminar is titled Sacred Time and the Lenten Journey. And this is a great opportunity to learn more about the season of Lent and learning more about the role that Lent plays in our spiritual rhythms. You can register for this event on Realm or through our website. And a reminder, at the end of this month, we are changing how we communicate through our viewpoint. So in order to receive that viewpoint or continue receiving that viewpoint, you'll need to join the Southview Group Update group on Realm. And this weekend, we had a brief succession planning update from Clyde, and you can listen to that now. But before we turn to our scripture passage today, I want to give a bit of an update on how we're moving forward with uh, my transition that's coming in June and the succession and search team processes uh, that we're moving through. And before we even look at that, let's remember what our mission is here as a local church. This is how we express it to lead as many as possible to passionately follow Jesus. I mean, that's our mission, and that will continue to be our mission as our focus and purpose will continue to be forming disciples who make disciples. Our symbol continues to represent what we are about. So all of that isn't changing. I mean, we know what we're about and what we want to be about. Okay, so... How then does our succession and search team process for a a new senior pastor, what does it look like? And here's two charts, I think, to help give us a picture of what the succession process is going to look like. And really, there are three phases that are part of this. And the first two phases are overseen by our succession team. Now, the succession team is largely made up of our elders, a few of our elders, along with uh, Pastor Justine Lofgren and John Amuson, one of our members here. That's the kind of focused succession team right now. And they are leading through the first extended process in light of the fact that we know where we're heading as a church. They're looking to evaluate and hear from us about our strength and growth areas. So they've been talking with our pastors, ministry leaders. They're going to be talking with others. They're going to be surveying us as a church family about this. What do we feel like we're doing well? Where do we need to grow together? Now, that's an extended process. Likely will lead us through April. And as we've talked with other churches, this process, some would call it a SWOT analysis, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. That is such a key thing for us to walk through in discerning, again, how we move forward with our mission. And once they have that data together, the second phase is going to be developing a ministry profile or ministry description for our new senior pastor based on what those strength and growth areas are. Now, once that's in place, the third phase is going to be overseen by a search team from us here. That'll be a larger group than the succession team. It won't be all of the same individuals, but members of our church family as well that are part of this. And what they are going to do is then move into the search and interview process for a new senior pastor based on that ministry profile. Now, we have talked to a lot of churches that have walked through that 
process. And, and let's be aware, that search process can take a year or more. Now, that's not what we probably want to hear, but that's what we'll be walking through in this. And let me say, it might not feel like it. That's a benefit for us, friends. Uh, that kind of in-between liminal time, because as we've said often, God does his best work in us and in this church in liminality, in those in-between, uncertain, kind of waiting place times. So that's what we'll be walking through as we continue on in the months and year potentially ahead. Now, a question that naturally comes up then is, okay, if that's the case, if that's how long it might take, how do we move forward in our ministry while we wait for that? What does our interim process look like? And to look at that, really, again, there are kind of two phases to this. Uh, for one, my last weekend here will be the June 10th, 11th weekend. Now, leading up to that, we've already begun the process of me transitioning responsibilities incrementally along the way, aiming for June 11th there. Now, June 11th, once that comes, we'll move into an interim leadership phase. And for that, our board of elders with confidence has decided we want to do that kind of interim leadership in-house. We believe our current staff is fully capable to lead us through that time with Sam and Chris and Fernando and Craig and Brett and, and all of our pastors and staff team. And, and we've done this before, even during my own sabbatical times, where we've been led well by our team during that time. So they will continue to lead regardless of how long it takes as we continue to move forward in seeking to lead as many as possible to passionately follow Jesus. And in this process, if you do have questions or, or want to give some input along the way, I'd encourage you, you can either call the church office or you can email succession at southviewchurch.com and our succession team will respond to your input or questions along the way in this. But above all, all of this reminds us to be praying. Amen? calling out to God, because although we're moving through a time of uncertainty from our perspective, God knows. This isn't my church. It is not just our church. This is Christ's church. And Christ has promised us, I am going to build my church, and even the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. Amen? And so we move into this time ahead, even though the unknown elements are out there, confident in him. As always, the best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out the weekly viewpoint, which I mentioned earlier, and you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast, or you can go on Realm and join the new group that I mentioned earlier. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you, and you can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now, today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant. Because God is here, and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Now, today we're starting a new teaching series as we journey through the season of Lent. 
I mean, Doug Balzer guided us last week in concluding our study of the first half of 1 John. And if you weren't here, I would really encourage you to watch or listen to Doug's teaching from last weekend. So we're kind of putting a pause on our study of 1 John, which we'll come back to after Easter. And we're going to pick up a different focus, though, for the season of Lent, which is a season of preparation for Good Friday and the celebration of Easter. Because, again, Lent is a season that's set apart particularly for reflection, for repentance, for prayer, and again, for preparation to celebrate the resurrection of our King. So for that reason, we are moving into a Lenten teaching series that we're calling Healed by Jesus, in which we want to look at some of the gospel accounts, especially in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, of Jesus' healings of those he encountered. Okay, but before we even begin with our first passage today, I want to lay a bit of groundwork for this series. I, I first want to give us four elements for us to kind of keep in mind through this whole teaching series as we look at some of these gospel miracles of Jesus. So again, before we read our passage, four elements for us to keep in mind as we read and seek to understand these stories of healing. Okay, so a first thing to keep in mind, a first element is focus. I want you to remember, so say the word with me, focus. Okay, now I want to acknowledge that healing miracles, that might seem like a kind of odd focus for the season of Lent, which again is a time of repentance, reflection, prayer, and really it's part of a consideration of some of the deep challenges that come in this life of following Jesus. So healing stories, miracle stories, might not initially seem like a fitting focus for Lent. But as we are going to see, these miraculous healing stories of Jesus often had an unusual, unexpected element or twist to them. In fact, here's the first element expanded. The focus of the healing stories is usually not the physical healing. The focus or point of these healing stories, it was usually not primarily about the actual healing itself. There was something else, something kind of hidden or unexpected that was the primary focus of the gospel writer. Because the point of the gospel writers was not just to prove that Jesus performed certain miracles. Again, usually there was something bigger that Jesus was wanting to communicate in the healing, which I think makes these stories so appropriate for us to study, specifically during Lent. And I think it prompts us to ask, okay, so why are these healings by Jesus told here? Was there a particular reason or point that Matthew's trying to make by describing them here? Because we know from John's gospel that there were many other works and miracles by Jesus that were not recorded in the gospels. So then the gospel writers, they picked and chose which miracles to include and which not to include. Which for one, tells us there was something significant going on in these healings particularly. So we will see that on the surface, 
The miracle might seem to be the main focus of the story, but there is actually something greater being explained beneath the surface. So our first element to keep in mind through this series is focus. And then there's a second element to keep in mind as we go through these healing stories in the Gospels, and it is simply faith. Say the word with me, faith. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, another element that we will see in the healing miraculous stories is that Jesus blesses faith wherever he finds it. Where there's faith, Jesus blesses it. But not only are we are going to see that Jesus blesses faith, but we are also going to see that Jesus finds faith in the most unexpected places. I mean, just think for a moment. If you were tasked with finding people of faith, where would you look? I mean, I think largely we'd look in churches or synagogues or mosques. I think we'd look for faith in religious places, places of faith. But that's not where Jesus finds faith. Jesus finds faith not in religious gatherings, but out there. In fact, of all of Jesus' miracles in the Gospels, and there are 35 of them, only two of those 35 miracles took place in a religious setting. Only two took place in like a synagogue or a temple. The other 33 miracles all happened in very non-religious places. Out there, where people were doing their day-to-day living. And in part, that's because that's where the need was. I mean, that's where the lepers and Samaritans and outcasts had to live. But another reason, as we're going to see, another reason Jesus did his miracles out there was because that's where the faith was. Which should, I think, cause us to pause a bit. That our Savior Jesus said, I see more authentic faith out there than I do when you religious people gather. Which makes you wonder, would that still be the case today? So we need to keep in mind focus. Secondly, a second element is faith. And then a third element for us to keep in mind in these healing miracles is the conclusion. Just say it with me, conclusion. And and by that I mean the conclusion to all these healing stories. Because in Matthew 8 and 9, we have the string of miracles by Jesus. There are nine miracles listed here. But then in chapter 10, after all these miracles are performed and everybody is now cheering Jesus... Jesus turns to his disciples, to his followers, and says, by the way, it's not just me. You, too, are going to do this. I don't want you just to cheer me, says the Lord. I want you to join me. I want you to be instruments and ambassadors of healing. Because the anointing of the Holy Spirit that is on me is soon going to be on you through that same Holy Spirit. And I'm giving you authority, and you are then to go out and bring my healing to Samaritans, to lepers, to the rejected, the poor, and the broken. 
So all this is going to lead to Christ's calling on us, on you. That's the conclusion. Okay, then a fourth element for us to keep in mind as we go through these stories of healing, you won't be surprised at this one. It is the context of these healing stories. Say the word with me, context. You say that word so well. Because leading up to our stories in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus has just been preaching the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, in which he confronts those who live these kind of empty, hypocritical, religiosity lives. But then he upholds those and declares that God's blessing is on those who are broken, poor in spirit. They're meek, mourning, merciful, persecuted, reviled. And Jesus declares that those broken, mourning, reviled ones are the ones who truly are closest to his kingdom. That's what he has just said. That's the context. And then Matthew adds that when Jesus closed that Sermon on the Mount, this is what we read, Matthew 7, 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished as it, at his teaching. Okay, so that's what has just taken place. And then Jesus heads down the mount after his sermon to demonstrate what that kind of kingdom of God, countercultural living, looks like in the stories of Matthew 8, 9, and following. Okay, so four elements for us to keep in mind each week in this teaching series as we study these healings by Jesus. They are focus, faith, conclusion, and context. Got it? Okay. So that's where we pick up the story. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And as we come to it, remember, friends, celebrate the reality that this is a word of God. And we read beginning in verse 1. And when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately... His leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, I think as we read that passage, I think it's kind of easy for us to pass over a key phrase in verse 2 there that would have been shocking, really astounding in that ancient day. As Matthew says this in verse 2, and behold, a leper came to Jesus and knelt before him. Now, that English word came, it comes from the original Greek word, proserkomai. Want to say that with me? Ready? Let's say it together. Proserkomai. Well done. What that word means is to make straight for. It, we could translate it to make a beeline for. And it also has a secondary mean, meaning of to worship. Okay, so why would that be shocking? 
a leper pushing through the crowd, wrangling his way to Jesus. That was unbelievable. Why? Well, you've likely heard before that lepers in that day and culture were despised. They were rejected. They really were viewed as unclean. And not just physically unclean, they were seen to be spiritually, ceremonially unclean. Really, no one of religious faith in that day would come near to or touch a leper. Now, you might know that leprosy is now called Hansen's disease. And it's actually, they discovered, it's caused by bacterial infection, which leads to numerous bad issues, including damage or even destruction of the nerve endings. So that a leper often could not feel pain or touch. So they couldn't tell then if they'd cut or injured their hand, foot, or arm. They couldn't tell, for example, if they walked on or bumped against burning coals. So over time, the leprosy could even lead to loss of limbs, loss of extremities. But they didn't understand all of that about nerve damage in biblical times. They could only see this person with lesions and their body seeming to be falling apart. And, and then the Levitical code said that the lepers had to wear sackcloth and ashes, which is what you wore to a funeral. So even the lepers' clothes, even they declared, I'm heading to my own funeral. And you weren't to come within six feet of a leper. And they were told not to come within six feet of you. And even if the wind was then blowing towards you from a leper, then you had to stay 150 feet away from them. So if a rabbi saw a leper coming too near to others the rabbi would throw stones at them like they were stray dogs. And the rabbis believed they were doing a good public service by throwing rocks at these diseased ones. And so, in that day, your personal holiness could be measured in part by how far you stayed away from unclean people like that. But here's the thing. It wasn't just the rabbis or passers-by who believed all of that about lepers. The lepers themselves believed it too. They believed they were unclean, cursed by God, rejected by God. They didn't think they were fit to be in the presence of others. And, and we won't take time to read all of the Old Testament guidelines about someone who had leprosy. You can read those in Leviticus 13 and 14. Really just to get an idea of how they responded to lepers and others with skin diseases in that day. But let me just read a short portion of those guidelines. This is from Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45. And it says there, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. And he shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. You know, you, you try to imagine the horrific suffering that that disease would bring upon you, and then on top of that pain, you spend your whole day shouting to everyone that you are rejected, 
unclean. And you are forced to live in complete isolation outside the camp. How do you think their spiritual and mental health would be? Not only do you have a disgusting disease, but you are viewed as a disgusting person because the rabbis taught that there was a spiritual reason why a person had leprosy. I mean, you did something bad, you sinned in some way to get leprosy. And, and so they said that leprosy was a judgment from God for sin. And the rabbis in that day, they even identified 11 sins that they taught caused leprosy. So the rabbis said that the lepers deserved their leprosy. They were being judged by God. So you really shouldn't help then because you'd be getting in the way of God's judgment of them. So it was then a good thing they thought to ostracize them. So people believe that the outer mess, ugliness, disease, and filth of leprosy, they believed it was just kind of an outer reflection of what was going on in a leper's messy, ugly, filthy heart. I mean, they thought, essentially, that lepers wore their sin on the outside. And you can't help but wonder... Does anyone feel like that in the church today? Who do you think might feel ostracized from the body of Christ today? But Clyde, that that was 2,000 years ago. It was, for certain. But know this, in many cultures today, lepers are still viewed as ones who should be rejected and condemned. In fact, a number of years ago, I was part of an evangelistic team that were traveling in Sri Lanka, just off the coast of India. And one day, a Christian guide took took us to this completely walled-in, just dilapidated residence on the outskirts of the city of Colombo. And it was a leprosy colony where those with leprosy were sent, essentially jailed, to spend the rest of their days as their bodies deteriorated in pain. And when we walked through that large front gate, there were a number of lepers standing there in the courtyard. And their response as we came through the gate was to step back. I mean, whether it was in fear or in doubt or habit, because people didn't enter that gate to see them. No one did. That's even in contemporary times. Which all adds to how shocking this encounter was when it says in Matthew 8, 2, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Oh, my word, a leper came to Jesus How dare he approach Jesus? So friends, the first thing for us to note beyond the physical healing is simply that this broken, rejected, ostracized one came to Jesus. I mean, he chose, regardless of what everyone else was saying, regardless of his mess, struggles, brokenness, and inadequacy, he chose to come to Jesus. I mean, he didn't let his challenges, his failures, his uncertainties, his doubts, or even his condition keep him from Jesus. 
And also notice, think about how he came. I think it's safe to say he came to Jesus desperately. I mean, he knew what he was doing. He knew how outlandish, disgusting his actions were. So clearly, this guy, he was at the end of his rope. I mean, it's hard for us to fully relate to this because in our day, really, we have so many other supposed sources for healing. A new job, a new house, or even so many other sources that we turn to to kind of try to deaden our pain or desperation. But for this leper, this was an incredible risk. He is banking everything on Jesus. He has no plan B. I mean, if I am wrong about this Jesus, I am likely dead. This crowd is going to turn on me in a moment and they'll stone me. So if this Jesus isn't who he say, says he is, I am done. I will be dead. And this leper would have known that many people called this Jesus rabbi. And the leper knew how rabbis responded to lepers. So you can imagine him wondering, so will this Jesus turn on me? I mean, will he stone me? Well, is he safe? All of that would have been going on in the mind of this leper, but even so, he came to Jesus and knelt before Jesus. And it was all on the line for that leper in that moment. But let's understand that leper, he was an embodiment of who Jesus had just been saying truly gets the kingdom of God. He got it. I mean, let's consider again what was happening just before Jesus went up on that mount to give that sermon. Because before Jesus gave that sermon earlier in Matthew, I mean, he was the hottest thing in that region. He was a preacher of the moment, a bit of a kind of a religious rock star. People wanted a part of him, wanted to get in on this kind of cool new movement and teacher. And how does Jesus respond to the adoration of the crowds and masses? He goes up on a hillside at the north end of the Sea of Galilee and starts explaining, so this is what I'm about. This is what my kingdom is about. In my kingdom, God's kingdom, the ones who are truly blessed, who are truly part of my kingdom, are the rejects, the broken, the ones at the end of their rope. I mean, it's not the outwardly religious ones. It's not the ones who think they got it all together who are part of my kingdom because they think they have their own sources of hope. They think they have a plan B. They, they don't receive my kingdom because they aren't desperate enough. You can receive my kingdom when you finally realize and acknowledge, like this leper, I have no other hope than Jesus. If he is not who he says he is, I will be a fool. It's when we realize I'm not just sick, I am dead apart from Jesus. So the leper comes to Jesus, essentially, with a question. 
Jesus, if you are willing, you can cleanse me. So are you willing, Jesus? And this guy didn't know what Jesus' response would be. He wasn't sure. But he was betting his life on it. He was laying it all on the line. But even through his fear, doubt, uncertainty, and pain, you know what Jesus saw? Faith. Look at verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. He, try to picture it, touched him as this rejected one knelt there. And, and think about that. This likely would have been the first time this leper had been touched since his leprosy came. So really, even before the physical healing came, Jesus touched him. He touched this one whom the rabbis and people believed was wearing his sinfulness. How dare Jesus? And again, that tells us something about Jesus. Beyond just his ability to bring a physical healing. You know, a bit later in this gospel, we read of Jesus confronting the scribes and Pharisees who focus primarily on looking good outwardly. And this is what Jesus said to that group, Matthew 23, 25. Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are blind, Pharisee. In other words, this leper gets it. He understands what you religious ones do not. And to this broken, uncertain, desperate leper, Jesus says this back in Matthew 8, 3. Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Now catch that. He wasn't just physically healed, Matthew says. He was cleansed. Now, the original Greek word that we translate as cleansed, you kind of know it. It's katharizo. It's the word from which we get our English word catharsis. And, and it meant to make whole, to wash off, to purify, outside and inside. Can you imagine? You know, there's a hymn we used to sing when I was growing up that taken from the story, which simply declared this. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened and now I know. He touched me. He made me whole. And then Jesus says to us, his church, don't just cheer me that I love people like this and can heal and cleanse people like this. Join me in bringing my cleansing my healing to those around you out there because most of them are out there. So let me close with a question before we come to the table. Do you want to be cleansed? Do you want to be made whole? 
Anyone feel kind of uncurable, untouchable? If you do, I have good news for you. Jesus is still willing to touch you, to lift you up. I mean, it may or may not include physical healing, but this same Jesus wants to bring cleansing to you. So before we receive from him in this meal of communion, can we bow our heads for a moment? Will you bow your heads with me? And in this quiet, can I just prompt you with those questions again? Can you reflect on this question? What is God saying to me right now? What is God saying to me? And then that second question, what am I going to do about it? What step is God prompting you to take? Our gracious Father, how we thank you for the wonder of your love. And Father, we thank you that you look down on us, each one of us, in our brokenness, our mess, our struggles, our uncertainties seeking to bring your cleansing, your wholeness, your encouragement, your touch to us. How we thank you for that, Father. And in that desire to receive from you, we come now to this table. And I would ask, Father, that as we come to this bread, would you, by your Spirit, feed us spiritually with this bread and cup? For we come in faith in the one of whom we just read and in whom we trust. This we pray in his name. Amen. And so we come with men and women of faith across the centuries and nations, and we break this bread to receive from him. We lift this cup to receive from him. So if you would take the cup you received as you came in, and if your heart is for Jesus today, I invite you to just open up that top lid, take out the piece of bread. If you're not certain about Jesus, it is fine to not participate in this. We're just thankful you're here. But if you want Jesus, I invite you, friends, to take that bread and remember the wonder. The body of Christ was broken for you. So receive from him. And then with the cup. I love that picture verbal picture Doug gave us last week in talking of even feeling this drink go down, that picture of receiving Christ within us. Because he is our hope, because his blood was poured out for you, received from him. Hallelujah. Let's pray to him again. Oh, our Father, how we thank you for your grace and goodness. And I pray that as we go out this week, Father, it's unlikely we'll encounter those with actual leprosy, but we will encounter those who are broken, who are uncertain, who feel rejected, who might on the outside feel, looks like they have it all together. Would you cause us to be salt and light out there 
by your Spirit's power, cause us to express your love and grace to those in need around us so they might know you and we might know and experience your presence. This we pray together. And again, all God's people say, amen. Amen. Will you stand with me, friends? So glad you could be here this weekend. And our gathering isn't over now. There's a time to hang out. Welcome someone maybe you haven't met before. And do hope you come next weekend as we look again. It's one of these wonders of Jesus' healing. But as you walk in this week, whatever it is going to hold for you, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more beyond all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's walk in that hope. Amen.